0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Amy Jill Levine and Mark Zvi Brettler regarding their edited work, The Jewish Annotated New Testament, second edition, published in New York by Oxford University Press 2017. Mark Brettler is the Bernice and Morton Lerner, Distinguished Professor of Jewish Studies in the Department of Religious Studies at Duke University, and the Dora Golding Professor of Near Eastern Studies Emeritus at Brandeis University. Amy J. Levine is Rabbi Stanley M. Kessler, Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace and University Professor of New Testament, and Jewish Studies Emerita, as well as Mary Jane Worthen, Professor of Jewish Studies Emerita at Vanderbilt University. Thank you for being together with me for this dialogue. I'm so grateful.
2: We're happy to be with you, but boy, by the time you get done with the titles, we've already killed about five minutes, so we should yeah. probably get right to the questions. Sure.
0: Delighted Thank you. to be here.
1: <laughs> Can you? Tell us about your inspiration behind this project. What message do you hope to convey to readers of of this work?
0: Uh, Inspiration may be too strong a word, but we could talk about how this project began. Sure. Uh, I've been involved with Oxford University Press on a number of projects for several years. Uh, One of them was the Jewish Study Bible, which I edited with Adele Berlin. And I enjoyed working on that book and editing it so much that I said, perhaps as a joke to the main edit, the main Bible editor of Oxford, Donald Crass, hey, this was fun. Maybe we should do a sequel, let's do the New Testament. And it was really a throwaway line until several years later, he came back to me and said, yeah, uh, the people at Oxford think that's a good idea. Why don't you do it? And he's the one <laughs> who made the Shiddach, who joined me together with A.J. Levine, because I am, by training, a scholar predominantly of the Hebrew Bible and of broader Jewish studies. It's very clear that you needed somebody with impeccable New Testament credential to work on this book. So uh, A.J. and I began to work on this. The first edition was so successful that soon thereafter, we were asked to do a second edition. Which expanded significantly on the first. In terms of inspiration, I'll start here and I'm sure AJ will join in. We had two Thank main you. audiences in mind. Thank you. Audiences who really need this book for very different reasons. Uh, a Jewish audience who often was afraid to read the New Testament or to read annotated versions of the New Testament because they felt, in some cases quite correctly, that those editions were attempting to convert them. Mm-hmm. And the second audience, a Christian audience, who did not have an understanding of the fact, and this is, I, I use the word fact only when I'm really sure I have a fact, though so, we were not well aware of the fact that Jesus indeed was Jewish, and that the New Testament needs to be understood, taking that into account, and taking the Jewishness of his earliest audience into account as well. Uh, that really does change the way in which the book needs to be understood so feeling the strong need in terms of both of those communities where their preconceptions to be corrected uh, that was a major motivation at least on my part
2: yeah I, i i would agree with everything that mark said and just to add Um, There are a lot of annotated Bibles on the market, Uh, denominational annotated Bibles, uh, racial or ethnically targeted uh, Bibles, uh, Bibles targeted to women, Bibles targeted to children, and all these annotations at the bottom. Uh, And having looked at a number of them, whether Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox or whatever, a lot of the notes are not only inaccurate, they're also uh designed i think unintentionally i hope unintentionally to convey a very very negative image of jews and judaism over against which jesus shines all you know positive and shiny uh we do not think that one needs to construct a negative image of judaism in order to make jesus look interesting i mean he is interesting he's a jewish teacher So what we can do and what we believe we have succeeded in doing with our volume is correcting some of these unfortunate and quite hateful stereotypes.
1: What are the primary themes in the notes and essays in your book?
2: Uh, The essays are designed substantially to provide background for people who want more information about both the events that the New Testament presents, like uh, what was the temple like? What was Jewish family life like? How did Jews understand Torah in various ways? Who are the various Jewish groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, and so on? What are the Dead Sea Scrolls? What do we know from other Jewish sources at the time, like Philo and Josephus? And along with those, we have Jewish reception history. So what have Jews thought about Jesus over time, for which we needed three separate articles, you know, early, medieval, and modern? How have Jews understood Paul of Tarsus? Uh, we will have a new essay. We have an essay on the Virgin Mary. Uh, and we're now contracting some new essays on figures in the New Testament who have... Uh, who are clearly identified within Christianity, but they also have some resonance in Judaism. So understanding how Jesus has appeared in Jewish novels or Yiddish poetry or art, for example.
0: Yeah, and I'll just add to that. I won't talk in terms of primary themes, but in terms of interests and goals that we had as we were working especially on the annotations, there was no good English source for what is often called the rabbinic background of the New Testament. Now we're both aware, and scholars are aware, that this is an incredibly problematic term because rabbinic texts are later than the New Testament. But nevertheless, they often preserve earlier traditions. And there's no one convenient place that people could really go to to find a collect to find what those sources are. So that's something that we try to do. We're also very well aware of certain. Misconceptions of an, uh, anti-Jewish misconceptions that people have about the anti- about the New Testament. So we were very conscious of correcting those. Something else that I in particular was interested in, that surprisingly has not been done enough, is exploring continuities and lack of continuities between the Hebrew Bible, what Christians would typically call the Old Testament, Jews will call the Hebrew Bible or may call the Tanakh, a term we may use later, between that text and the New Testament. So a lot of the annotations really do look at the continuities between the old and the new. And we especially wanted to talk about places such as the blood cry at the end of Matthew, texts that have been used against Jews for close to two millennia, but we're careful look at those texts really shows that those texts do not say exactly what people think they say. So we made a real effort to put more energy and more words into commenting on texts like that.
2: Right. But for difficult texts like Matthew's blood cry, where all the people, the Greek is Pasolos, had Matthew been written in Hebrew, it probably would have been Kol ha'am, all the people cry out, his blood be on us and on our children. And we get this kind of perpetual blood guilt. Uh, but in other passages, which really do look pretty awful, we're not attempting to explain away the difficulties. We're attempting to set them within historical context as best that we can, and then to explain to readers, whether Jewish or not, uh, here's how Christians over the centuries have understood those passages, so that the Jewish reader picking up this text and finding some quite is, texts that sound quite hateful will also be aware that Christian churches over the centuries, to to a great extent, have disavowed some of that hateful language.
0: Yeah, to pick up on that, and to use a word which A.J. did not use, but you would agree with, this is in no way an apologetic volume. Yeah, I would agree. This is in no way an apologetic volume. When we think that texts are problematic on one side or another, we talk about that, whether that's in the texts, such as Children of the Devil, that does not have a great historical context that, that explains that text away, or, and this actually happened, we we had One of the essays that we have, and the essays are an essential part of this volume. One of the essays that we'd commissioned for the second edition, which was not present in the first, A.J. had mentioned it earlier, was on Mary in Jewish thought. And when we asked the person to write it, he answered, well, you know, by and large, the Jewish view of Mary is not terribly positive, to say the least. And we said, yes, we're aware of that but that is part of the historical record. And we really want you to present that in a straightforward, unapologetic fashion.
1: How can the Jewish annotated New Testament contribute to scholarly and academic conversations about anti-Semitism?
2: Well, to some extent, we've already responded to that question. Uh, we can correct the the standard misinterpretations that in fact continue to appear in sermons, in Bible studies, in popular readings, and sometimes in the classroom. Uh, and we know it can do the correction because we frequently get letters from pastors and teachers saying, oh, we didn't realize whatever. We have now changed our sermon. We have now changed our lecture. The text can broaden the understanding of the New Testament as Jewish history rather than just look at it as part of Christian history or part of uh, the history of first century Roman empire, for example. So th- this brings Jewish scholars who may have expertise in something like the Dead Sea Scrolls or rabbinic literature uh, into broader conversation with the people who are working in New Testament. So the text opens up corrections and it also opens up interdisciplinary possibilities.
0: Yeah, I would just add to that something that I alluded to earlier, but I think it's important. It is important as well in terms of this question, because it is a historical fact. This book is emphasizing time after time again, the Jewishness of Jesus. Now it is important to realize that over the last two decades or so, there have been several attempts to say that Jesus is, Jesus was a Jew in a way in which contemporary Jews are not. And often this is based on a rather bizarre theory, which has been disproven that most current Jews are descendants of a group called the Khazars from the Middle Ages who converted to Judaism, and thus current Jews have nothing to do with the Jewishness of Jesus. I mean, this is complete nonsense. It's been debunked on a scholarly level, it's been debunked on a biological genetic level. And I think it is more difficult for people who have a full appreciation of the Jewishness of Jesus who, in such a glib fashion, uh, be anti-Jewish, or at least I would hope so.
2: Right. So we frequently get books where, you know, Jesus is a peculiar Jew or a marginal Jew or a Jewish but not Jewish. Um, and what this book does is ground him firmly within late Second Temple Judaism and all of its diversity. So that when Jesus has an argument with the Pharisees, nothing new there. It's not like Jews haven't argued with each other in the past. It's not like Pharisees don't argue with Pharisees or Pharisees with Sadducees. So we can correct this attempt uh, increasingly uh, found in the media now regarding some people uh, making comments about what happened uh, in October uh, in the Middle East who want to yank Jesus out of his Jewish context and deny Jewish connections to the national Jewish homeland. So this firm grounding of the New Testament within its own Jewish environment provides a nice correction to those misinterpretations.
1: How does the Jewish annotated New Testament recontextualize the Pharisees?
2: Well, it does so uh, as best as we can. We have back articles on the various Jewish movements of the time, um, and we ha- we have commissioned a brand new article on the Pharisees uh, by a brilliant Israeli scholar um, based on a conference that was held in Rome in 2019 on the Pharisees. And that resulted in another book called, of course, The Pharisees, on which I was a co-editor, along with Joseph Severs, who was a priest who works at the Biblicum in Rome. So what do we know about the Pharisees? Um, Contrary to standard Christian stereotype, the Pharisees are not the the ultra-conservatives. They're, in fact, the liberals uh, who tend to make things easier for people rather than more difficult. The Dead Sea Scrolls refer to them as seekers after smooth things. In other words, you guys make things too easy. Um, uh, Pharisees would be the sort of person uh, for your Jewish listeners who would put up an Arab so you can actually carry things on the Sabbath, and Pharisees would have loved that. Uh, Pharisees are part of an egalitarian tradition that says, why should the priests in the temple be the bearers of the standard of holiness? Everybody can be holy because Exodus talks about being a holy nation in a priestly kingdom. And that's why the Pharisees are interested in things like washing your hands before you eat, because that's what the priests would do, wash their hands before touching the elements of the sacrifice. And the Pharisees say, you can all be like that. So when we look at the Pharisees as being popular among the people, Josephus, our first century historian, no fan of the Pharisees, is upset with them because he says, hey, the people ought to be listening to priests like him. And instead, they're listening to Pharisees, this lay-led group. They're popular among the people because they walk the walk as well as talk the talk. And once we understand who the Pharisees were in the first century, we can understand better why the New Testament, particularly the Gospel of Matthew, is so harsh against the Pharisees and issues so many invectives against the Pharisees, they're the major competition to people who are proclaiming Jesus as Lord and proclaiming Jesus' way of understanding the Torah as opposed to the Pharisees' way. And it turns out, if you look at the Gospels very closely, it's Jesus who makes the Torah more rigorous,
0: more difficult to follow, rather than the Pharisees. Let me pick up on something that A.J. said. She used the phrase that the Pharisees are the major competition with Jesus. And that's really important. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. But so much of what we do as a scho- as scholars is we engage in a method which is called historical critical study. And part of what historical critical study involves is understanding rhetorical styles that were used at different times in history. And that would include understanding and appreciation, appreciating the type of anti-Pharisee rhetoric that you have in the New Testament and in antiquity. And by the way, the same is true now as well. You typically don't polemicize most strongly against the people whom you totally disagree with. You polemicize against the people who you are rather close to and whom you're somewhat disappointed, have not come around to accept your position. Like I could give examples from the upcoming election, but I better stay away from that. But you could imagine uh, such examples quite easily that are happening in the media now. So as such, once you understand this rhetorical style, uh, it sounds very strong, but this is really a type of creating an identity and expressing a certain type of frustration rather than, and this is the really important point, Uh, depicting a historically accurate depiction of what the Pharisees are. The New Testament cannot be used, I hope everybody heard the word not there, cannot be used in a straightforward way to reconstruct almost any elements of late Second Temple history or the history of the period shortly after that. And that certainly includes understanding The difference, people often use the word sect and would call the Pharisees a sect. I would prefer the word group because it does not have the negative valence that sect has in English. You cannot use the New Testament uh, for reconstructing precisely what those groups looked like. Of course, you could use it in conjunction with other sources, but to take it as a total straightforward source and to use it as the whole source and to say, oh, because this is what it says in the Gospels, this is exactly what the Pharisees looked like, that would really be a misuse of historical method.
2: Right. And moreover, um, Pharisees come out differently in the New Testament. It just depends upon the verse that you want to look at. Exactly. Uh, So what's often happened in Christian reception history is the church has gone to the Gospel of Matthew, particularly chapter 23, where Jesus issues a series of invectives against Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you do everything awful and then some. Uh, the only Pharisee who, from whom we have any written records at all happens to be Paul of Tarsus, which is weird. Um, and when Paul talks about being a Pharisee, as he does in his epistle to the Philippians, he trots it out as one of his major credentials. You know, I'm a Hebrew born of Hebrew. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee. And he looks at that as, hey, look at me. I'm like, you know, the best there was up there. Uh, when Paul has his uh, experience where he believes the risen Christ has, has spoken to him, and he goes from being a persecutor of the church to being uh, an evangelist for it, he doesn't give up being a Pharisee. And we see that in the book of Acts, where he talks about, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of a Pharisee. Um, he thinks he's just a better Pharisee because he's a Pharisee with Jesus. So If we just read Matthew 23, we'll get horrible images of Pharisees. If we read the Gospel of John, which has some horrible things to say about Pharisees, we also find a leader of the Pharisees whose name is Nicodemus, and he's quite darling. And if we go to the book of Acts, we find another Pharisee named Gamaliel, whom we actually know from external sources, Josephus and the rabbis, who's also quite darling so even when we start getting these negative images of the pharisees that's that's not just the new testament it's selective reading of passages in the new testament
1: in your presentation of the first letter of peter chapter 1 you present a discussion on page 503 of isaiah's suffering servant passage how is this passage relevant to understanding the first letter to peter how can Christians and Jews learn from the different reinterpretations of this passage in their respective traditions?
0: Sure. Let me start with that and perhaps give some background uh, to the question so that the audience has a better understanding of what these suffering servant passages are. It's a broad scholarly consensus within Hebrew biblical studies that Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 were not written by the same person who wrote most of Isaiah chapters one through 39 and scholars for more than a century have called this individual Deutero or second Isaiah is a way of distinguishing him from the earlier material and actually from the material at the end of the book. So specifically within these chapters, there are several passages which talk about a servant of God who suffers that person is actually never called in the Hebrew Bible itself, the suffering servant. That is a term which more modern scholars have given to him. Uh, The more important, the most important and longest chapter about this individual, but here I actually need to be careful, or perhaps these individuals is from the end of Isaiah chapter 52 and and all of chapter 53. And it might seem odd to some of the listeners that I'm starting in the middle of a chapter, but the chapter numbers only came in in the 13th century of the common era and are of little value in terms of dividing the Bible into sections. And these passages never identify who the suffering servant was. And indeed some passages in Isaiah chapter 40 to 55 do suggest that the suffering servant needs to be understood not as an individual, but as a larger group, namely as corporate Israel. And indeed, you have a juxtaposition of the Hebrew word Israel, Israel, and the term evid, servant, in these chapters. But nevertheless, there may be a very good case to be made that the suffering servant, as we call him in some of these cases, uh, was understood as an individual by some in ancient Israel, and perhaps maybe that was even the intention of the prophet. But then that raises a couple of questions. If it is an individual, was this an individual who lived in the past, is living in the prophet's present, or is going to be living in the future? There is nothing in the biblical text to help resolve that particular question, which is why different scholars are all over the map concerning that issue and what it originally meant. It's a very enigmatic image, and it's a very exceptional image in terms of an individual suffering vicariously and there, thereby bearing, as the text in Isaiah says, quoted in the New Testament, the sins of the many." As an exceptional text, it garnered a lot of interest because, you know, ho-hum texts, who's gonna talk about them? But when you have something unusual, different people are going to focus on that, trying to explain the anomaly. So it is easy to imagine that after that text was written, after generations after the death of the prophet, many people were trying to figure out who was this enigmatic figure. And among the people who were trying to figure it out were the earliest, I won't use the word Christians, I'll be a little more precise, and use the word Christ believers, because these were not yet a formal group that had a self-identity or an outside identity. As Christians, that would happen probably at least a century later. And so this group of Christ believers, perhaps Jesus himself, this is a bit of a debate, thought, oh yes, this is indeed referring to me. The one last thing I'll say about this from a biblical perspective, and then I'll let A.J. take over and answer the specific New Testament question is that there is nothing in the depiction of the suffering servants at the end of Isaiah chapter 52 or in Isaiah 53 or in any of the related questions, which suggests that he is a messianic figure. Now, please do not misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the New Testament authors who understood the suffering servants as a messianic figure were wrong. I am not saying that, but I'm saying that the early New Testament authors, and this is in quite a few places, who understood the suffering servant as Jesus made a number of moves. One of them is, yes, this is not merely a suffering servant, but it does not refer to a group, but refers to an individual. It refers to an individual who is now living among us. It refers to an individual who is living among us, who is royal, and in that sense is anointed, namely as a Christus, is a Messiah. And thus the particular New Testament interpretation of the suffering servant. It's important for all the listeners to realize is one of many possible interpretations that could be taken of this particular unit. And now, A.J., fill in the New Testament context.
2: Well, it's been said about the New Testament that you can read every single book in the New Testament and you will either see quoted or alluded to Isaiah's suffering servant. So it's it's a major trope that shows up among the followers of Jesus, who, uh, at least in that first generation, they're all Jews. uh, And the only book that they have that's considered scripture is these Hebrew texts, usually here for the New Testament in Greek translation, so part of the Septuagint. And they're going back to their own scriptures and they're trying to figure out how Jesus fits in. Um, and in this retrospective reading, you know if you put on Jesus' colored glasses, they begin to see Jesus on every single page of the text, from the beginning of Genesis up to the end of the Greek Canon, which would be the prophet Malachi, with the writing stuck in the middle. First, Peter is like uh, Mark's description of Isaiah, probably not written by Peter. So just as we have Deutero-Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, not written by the same Isaiah who is responsible for chapters 1 through 39, so many biblical scholars do not think that St. Peter, who is a Galilean fisherman, uh, wrote the first epistle of Peter. Uh, we don't even know if he could speak Greek, and 1 Peter is written in pretty good Greek. Uh, in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, which is not a terribly long letter, uh, Peter is setting out what's called a household code. We often, in in technical terms, a house tafilm, because... New Testament scholars like to use German for various reasons, household table, uh, which says, you know, here's what uh, husbands are supposed to do. Here's what wives do. Here's what parents do. Here's what kids do. And because this is the first century, here's what people who have enslaved people in their household do. And here's what the enslaved people are supposed to do. So the part where first Peter evokes Isaiah's suffering servant is part of that household code uh, where the author is giving instruction to enslaved individuals. And it starts out, slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only those who were kind and gentle, but also those who were difficult, who were harsh. I mean, and to us, I mean, to me at least, that sounds horrible. Um, you're an enslaved person and, and the person who owns you wants to beat you. Yeah, accept it. The text goes on. It's a credit to you if being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly and enslaved people suffered unjustly because the masters in the Roman Empire basically do what they wanted to the body of a slave. Um, He says, the author goes on, if you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, what credit is that? Like if you pilfered something, well, of course you would be beaten. That's already horrible enough. But if you endure while you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. Why? Because you're following the example of the Christ. And at that point, the author of 1 Peter drops in citations to Isaiah 53. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. That's Isaiah 53, 9. And then uh, the author goes on to say, he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins, we might live for righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. So instead of speaking about just Jesus as the suffering servant, what first Peter does is extend the message of the suffering servant and say, that could be anybody that could be you enslaved man, woman, or child in a household of a Greek or Roman, probably this text is probably written to Gentiles in the household of a Greek or Roman or, uh, uh, Egyptian slave owner be beaten, suffer because Jesus suffered along with you. Now, to us, this is horrible, or to me, it's horrible. It's devastating. For people in antiquity, for some enslaved people in antiquity who saw no hope of gaining their freedom, who lived in a household with a horrible situation, it may be that this association with Jesus is the one thing that gave them hope. So here's the historical approach to it. Uh, From a 21st century perspective, the entire text is dreadful and unredeemable. But from a first century perspective, Thinking about enslaved people what allowed them to get up the next morning and it may have been the sense that this uh this uh jewish figure whom they looked at as god or pretty close to being god understood fully what they were undergoing understood that suffering and is holding that suffering with them together so there's some sort of solidarity there this stuff is not easy but it's really important what light
1: does your work shed on the representation of poverty and economics in the Bible?
2: Well, there's there's a standard trope that I keep hearing among Christians that Jews mm-hmm. proclaim good news to the rich and Jesus invented good news for the poor. Um, so we have a number of annotations and essays talking about uh, how responsibility for the poor is encoded in Torah, Deuteronomy, extend your hand to the poor and needy because you'll always have the poor in your land or leave the corners of your fields ungleaned so that people can come behind the reapers um, and provide for themselves. Take care of the poor, the widow, the orphan, the migrant Um, and to bring those passages from Torah and also from prophets. I mean, Amos is uh, really good if you want somebody to argue against people who are rich and who are not doing a good job taking care of the poor. Taking, taking some of these passages from the scriptures of Israel and showing how they underlie some of the material that we have in the New Testament, rather than just saying Jesus invented social justice or Jesus invented the human rights campaign.
0: Let me pick up on that. So much of what religions do now and have done is to create their, ident- their identity by through what is called the negative identity. The, the others are totally the opposite of what we are. And sadly, that has also happened within some Christian interpreters, especially Christians interpreters of the New Testament. And thus, and this is picking up on something that I said earlier, one of my interests has really been showing certain continuities, often more continuities than people realize, between the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh and the New Testament. The examples that A.J. adduced would certainly be within that group. I would just add one other example, lest somebody say, well, of course, within the Old Testament, and I'll use that term on purpose here, that only referred to Jews taking care of Jews. I'll just remind everybody that the book of Ruth is very much a part of the Tanakh or the Old Testament. And a main theme of the book of Ruth is that Ruth is not an Israelite. In fact, uh, at various points he the text, or she herself calls herself a nohria, a foreigner. It's like, why are you being so nice to me? And I am a foreigner. Yet this nohria foreigner is allowed to glean among all of the Israelite gleaners and is treated in exactly the same way. So that the, certainly there are differences between the Hana and the New Testament. But understanding the New Testament as a progressive book in this particular case, where suddenly there is an interest for the poor, is incorrect. That is very centrally a theme of the Hebrew Bible. And by the way, if you want to talk about later Jewish literature, that is very centrally a theme of later rabbinic literature as well, uh, understanding and taking care of the people who are less fortunate than you.
2: Just to add to that, um, I sometimes get from my Christian friends, oh, gee, uh, when you get to you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is Leviticus 19, 18, Uh, that Jews just mean Jews and Christians think neighbor means everybody, uh, which is true in a weird way. Um, Leviticus 19, 18 really does mean you shall love your fellow Israelite because your fellow Israelite is like you. But if you just go on a couple more verses in the same chapter, Leviticus says you have to love the gear, you know, the stranger, the, the not native born. You have to love the gear as yourself because you were gerim, not native born in the land of Egypt. In other words, you knew what it was like to be without a safety net. You knew what it was like to be away from your homeland. And you know how horrible that could be because, you know, life in Egypt back then was 400 years of slavery followed by genocide was not great. Uh, therefore, you need to take care of, in effect, the poor, the widow, the orphan and the non-native born. So Jews have never restricted social justice just to fellow Jews. Um, and when it comes even to taking care of one's enemy, Jesus is, I think, the only person in antiquity who gets up and says you have to love your enemy as yourself. Uh, but if you look at the scriptures of Israel, although we Jews are not commanded to love our enemy, we have to take care of them. Right? if they're hungry we have to feed them if they're thirsty we have to give them something to drink if their animal is overburdened we have to help that animal um so we're not in for the emotive sense but we're certainly in for the sense that everybody everybody is in the divine image and likeness and therefore we take care of these people
0: let me just pick up on two points that aj made so just so everybody has the hebrew verse or the verse of the bible so the first verse of you shall love your neighbors yourself is Leviticus 19.18 and the Hebrew there is the second verse which talks about loving the and the foreigner is Leviticus 19.34 the first and third word of this expression are exactly identical and the only difference is the middle word where one text says You have to love your neighbor, and the other texts extend that to him, in other words, to everybody. And just a second thing that needs to be pointed out, at least in certain New Testament texts, are not all that tolerant to your neighbor if they are not going to agree with you in terms of understanding that Jesus was indeed the Christ. So that is also important to put within this large to consider within this larger equation. It's because I think just to pick up on Mark's comment, so
2: this is how we wound up editing these volumes together as we keep picking up on each other's comments, which actually makes it fun. And um, Judaism never settled down just to be a religion in the sense of a, a community based on some sort of belief or what sometimes people will call a faith-based community, which is how you wind up with atheist Jews. Um, Jews always kept a sense of peoplehood. Um, you know, you're a Jew if your parents are Jewish, uh, maternal descent uh, from the rabbinic period, paternal descent earlier on. Um, so Jews understood who Jews were or Israelites were as opposed to people on the outside. What happens in Christianity, which is sometimes called a universal religion, is the idea that everybody should be a Christian. So therefore, everybody's a potential neighbor or a potential convert. And once they're in, they're all neighbors. But there's no room for the stranger, the not Christian. So in the Christian imagination, as Christianity began to develop, you're either a fellow Christian or you're an infidel or an apostate. And if you're an infidel, we're going to throw you out of the country. And if you're an apostate, we're going to burn you at the stake. Jews, because they always kept this ethnic component, never thought that everybody needed to be Jewish in order to be in a right relationship with God or in order to be moral. Um, so Jews were in a good position to be able to welcome the not us, because the not us, the ger, um, the not native born, um, has has his or her own way of being in the world, and that can be honored.
1: How does your work shed new lights on the representation of biblical women?
2: It's a standard Conception In many Christian settings that uh, first century Judaism was uh, the height of misogyny and Jesus invents feminism. And what we're able to do is not only look at what we know about uh, the depiction of women in the scriptures of Israel. Uh, and in what is called the Old Testament apocrypha or deuterocanonical literature. uh, These are books that are uh, considered authoritative for Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox and Anglican communions and considered good to read by Protestants. Uh, But we can actually use the New Testament to construct women's history. And what do we learn? That women have access to their own funds. They serve as patrons of the Jesus movement, just as we know from external sources that women were serving as patrons for the Pharisees. Uh, they have freedom of travel uh, they're not restricted to women's quarters uh, they appear in public and nobody goes oi give alt. it's a woman in public uh, they show up in synagogues they show up in the jerusalem temple they ask questions in public uh, they actually can leave their husbands on occasion uh, they are not oppressed and depressed and suppressed and repressed So that contrary to a number of Christian teachings, the reason women joined the Jesus movement is not because they are oppressed and suppressed by Judaism, uh, but because they found in their association with Jesus something that spoke to their hearts. I also think it's likely that the women who were particularly attracted to Jesus and to his movement uh, were women who were not married, uh, perhaps divorced, never married, widowed, deserted, because the vast majority of women surrounding Jesus, at least according to the gospels, uh, tend to be so without spousal accompaniment in the same way that the men surrounding him tend to be without their wives. So what he's doing is in effect, providing them a new family. This would not be dissimilar to what we have reflected in some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, where people go out to the desert to be with this voluntary community, uh, and that becomes your new family or from philo the jewish philosopher from alexandria who talks about a group of people he calls them the therapeuti or in for the feminine Therapeutrides, who are men and women who are living in effect adjoining dormitories they're living celibately they're all jews and they come together for bible study
0: and worship and prayer and meals and let me answer your question in a slightly different way uh, one of the public lectures that i enjoy giving is titled feminism and anti-feminism in the Hebrew Bible. And the Hebrew Bible contains both of those elements without any question. Uh, But in terms of there being a total change from the Tanakh to the New Testament, I mean, that is simply wrong, given that there are proto-feminists and pro-feminist sentiments in the Hebrew Bible, beginning in the very first chapter where when the first person who in that chapter is not named Adam is created, the text is very clear. The person was created in his image. Elohim In the image of God, was he or it created? Male and female were they created straightforward reading of that verse first chapter of the bible genesis 127 both men and women are created in the image of god and they seem to be they are created simultaneously unlike what you have in chapters two and three where first the man is created and then a woman from the man and if that indeed has a value judgment in it yeah that's a whole other lecture that we could that we can discuss i'm not going to go there but genesis 127 should probably be sufficient although there are many more texts which show uh certain degrees of equality or equality in certain spheres and in terms of the notion of jesus and the new testament being totally liberating to women uh aj earlier mentioned the household codes where the household codes have a clear gender hierarchy. So both of these texts, if we're going to be fair about them, have elements in them which we would like as moderns in terms of the way in which they depict, depict gender relations, and texts that we would find quite problematic. And it, the simple points which AJ started with, which is unquestionably correct, this is yet another case where we cannot dichotomize and should not, from a historical perspective, see the New Testament as a corrective of the Old. But where I would say we should really look at both of these texts in continuity and see the way in which, in different aspects, each of them has certain notions concerning gender that we find problematic, and other aspects concerning gender that we may find surprisingly modern, and therefore might want to applaud. And just to add one more point to that, um, so the standard the standard
2: stereotype about misogynistic Judaism and progressive Jesus uh, really begins to develop in the late 1960s and early 1970s as Christian women, uh, Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox, were wondering how come they weren't getting leadership roles in their own churches. This is sometimes called the stained glass ceiling. Uh, So they figured as long as they could get Jesus to provide some sort of leverage, if Jesus were proactive on women, then they could go to their own church bodies and say, hey, Jesus was proactive. So how come you're not ordaining us? Uh, The problem is that Jesus is not proactive on women. Um, He summons no woman to be one of his disciples, like he summons a bunch of guys from the fishing boats or the toll booth. There's no woman at the scene called the transfiguration. There's no woman at the Last Supper that I can track. I mean, they may have been there because absence of evidence is not the same thing as evidence of absence, but there's no record of them there. Uh, There's no woman at Gethsemane. Um, So how do you get a progressive Jesus? Well, the easiest way you do it is you drop the bar in first century Judaism to make first century Judaism look like the Taliban. And then anytime Jesus talks to a woman, he looks progressive. And how do you drop the bar in first century Judaism? Well, at the same time, Christian women were wondering how come they were not being ordained in churches. Jewish women were wondering how come they could not get smicha to become rabbis. The first woman, modern woman ordained in the United States is 1972. That's Sally Price and by the reform movement. So Jewish women were also looking for leverage. And not only did we go to the Tanakh, we also went to rabbinic sources and medieval sources. And we pulled out all the stuff that said, no, women can't do whatever. And then we pulled out all the positive stuff because the Talmud, you know, one guy says this, one guy says this, the people do that and whatever. And we published. What happened was that the Christian women, who did not have the competency to read the Talmud, because that actually takes a fair amount of training, uh, looked at what the Jewish women were publishing, picked out the negative comments, ignored all the positive ones, retrojected those comments from their own Talmudic time period, third century, fourth century, retrojected them back into the time of Jesus, said that that's what constitutes Judaism, and then compared Jesus to these negative comments in the Talmud. It's a nasty way of doing history. Um, And in fact, I have seen on occasion Jews do the same thing uh, by pulling out nasty comments about women from Paul of Tarsus or from the early church fathers, like the North African father, Tertullian, who who says to, to women, you are the devil's gateway. You know, it's downhill from Eve all the way down. And then say, look at how awful Christianity is, and then showing progressive rabbinic sources. It's just bad history. Um, and to make oneself look good by making another tradition look bad, is also just not nice.
0: It's not nice and it's wrong methodologically. Yeah. And something that really needs to be considered is how do you do the history of the late Second Temple period? And just, again, a reminder that the Second Temple was destroyed in the year 70 of the Common Era. So, uh several decades after the death of Jesus. Uh, And there is really important to remember, we know so little about what actually happened in this period, especially in terms of social history. And oddly enough, the main source, or maybe it's not odd at all, the main source or one of the main sources that we have for understanding Judaism of this particular period is the New Testament. So we have to be really, really careful about at assuming particular reconstructions of this period, especially of social history, given how very little information we have and about given all the cautions that are necessary, coming back to a point that was made earlier about using rabbinic texts as rabbinic backgrounds in quotation marks for the New Testament, given those texts are later. And certainly norms do change over a few centuries so we really do not know How the average woman fared in Jerusalem, let us say, in the year 65 of the Common Era. And if Jesus had a similar vision or a different vision.
1: What new perspectives are presented in your book regarding biblical depictions of illness, disability, disease, sickness, and infirmity?
2: Um, We think that's a really important question. And since we're now working on the third edition of the Jewish Annotated, we have commissioned a back essay specifically on questions of disability. Um, it, again, we have a standard stereotype where uh, the Christian reader very often presumes that Jews looked at anyone suffering disability, blindness, deaf, deafness, paralysis, uh, demon possession, which would manifest as aberrant behavior, um, uh, that person would be outcast, marginalized, treated as worthless, um, or seen as impure So here's a confusion of purity categories with categories of disability. Um, And then by healing people, Jesus is correcting this terrible Jewish system. So we're able to show how that doesn't work and is completely inconsistent with Jewish values uh, that we can track from before the time of Jesus, during the time of Jesus, to after the time of Jesus. For example, uh, Jesus heals a person with a skin disease. The Greek term is leprous, which is where we get leprosy. The Hebrew would be tsarot, but it's skin disease not like uh, eczema or psoriasis or something like that. Um, and that also creates a state of ritual impurity. Uh, so the common stereotype among Christians is that by touching a person with a skin disease, um, Jesus is doing away with Jewish purity laws to the contrary. When Jesus touches a person with a skin disease or in another on another occasion when he, um, he allows himself to be touched by a woman who's suffering either uh, uh, vaginal or uterine hemorrhages, which would also put her in a state of ritual impurity, uh, he's doing two things. Uh, the first is he's healing somebody who's sick um, and wants that healing. And the second thing he's doing is actually restoring people to states of ritual purity rather than doing away with the purity codes we find most of the disabled people in the text embedded in familial or uh, some sort of um, community system where they are taken care of. Uh, One of the first healing narratives we have is of Jesus going to the home of St. Peter. Um, And it turns out that Peter's mother-in-law is in bed with a fever and Jesus cures the fever. But this tells us that somebody who's ill is not tossed out on the street. To the contrary, somebody who's ill is in the house and people in the house are taking care of her, as Jesus would do.
0: Yeah, and I would just add to that, again, given my interest in the continuity between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, is I encourage all of your readers to take a look at 2 Kings chapter 5 where the prophet Elisha, who is the disciple of the prophet Elijah, he heals the leprosy, that's in scare quotes, the scale skin disease of a fellow named Naaman, who is a foreigner. So this shows tremendous continuity between the texts and similarity of attitudes rather than fundamental differences.
2: Right. Or even the idea that comes out in some Christian readings that Jews, all all Jews, as soon as you get all Jews, there's already a problem because there's not there's not like a head Jew to tell Jews how to think um, that all Jews thought that uh, disability was created by sin. And then Jesus, by healing people who are disabled, decouples sin from disability. Well, that doesn't work either. Um, so if we look back to the scriptures of Israel, which, of course, Christians share, Um, Isaac is blind, but he's not blind because of sin. He's blind because he's old. Uh, The prophet Eli is blind. He's the one who raises uh, eventually the prophet Samuel. Um, He's not blind because of sin. Uh, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, can't walk, but that's not because of sin. That was because of a a childhood injury. And Job, who's clearly a mess, didn't sin. Um, So the Jewish tradition does not so firmly couple sin and disability. It does on occasion. But for the most part, it does not.
0: Yeah, I'll just add one more example to that. It's an important example because most people don't see it. Uh, in many Psalms where the Psalmist is asking God to be healed or to be in a better state, the Psalmist protests his or her innocence. One of those cases is Psalm 6, which is among the, the Catholic penitential Psalms. and. It would have been very easy for the person to say, "Listen, I understand that I did X, Y, and Z, and that is why I'm being punished." No, there is a recognition in the Hebrew Bible as well that sometimes, or more than sometimes, terrible things happen to innocent people, and that is another line of continuity between what we might call the two Testaments.
1: How do your notes shed new light on the meaning and significance of the
0: Sabbath? <laughs> They explain this.
2: You know, AJ, why don't
0: you take this first? I can do this one.
2: Um, So yet another common Christian misconception is that all Jews dreaded the Sabbath. You know, it's it's coming on toward Friday night. Let's get everything done. Because if we do any sort of work on the Sabbath, um, God's going to zap us. And that, of course, makes all Jews either sanctimonious or neurotic. And then Jesus comes along and says, oh, don't worry. The Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. You know, let off all this this stuff. Well, that's not how the way the Sabbath functioned back then. And for people I know who are Shomer Shabbos, like Mark, it's not the way the Sabbath functions today either. Um, uh, When Jesus says the Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath, you can find exactly the same statement in rabbinic literature. Uh, Romans, Gentiles thought the Sabbath was the height of laziness. What silly Jews, they thought. They take a day off every, every six days and then you get a day off. How bizarre is that? Um, so the Sabbath was something that Jews were known for. Uh, and what does it do? It provides appropriate downtime. It says, you know, put away whatever you're doing, like today, like the computer, the phone, whatever, and spend some time with your family and spend some time with God because you got six other days to do all this stuff. Jesus, in fact, honors the Sabbath and keeps it holy the same way other Jews do. He goes to Shul. I mean, it's not a word he would have used, uh, but the New Testament does use the Greek term synagogue. Um, So Jesus goes to synagogue. Uh, He participates in Torah reading. He participates in reading of the prophets. He gives some teaching. And on occasion, to go back to your earlier question, uh, we find disabled people in the synagogue, like a lady who's bent over. Uh, Jesus says she's bent over by Satan. I think she's bent over by osteoporosis, but those are not mutually exclusive. Uh, And he raises her up. And at this point, uh, the synagogue ruler, he's not a rabbi. He's, he's, the Greek term is archi It really does mean synagogue ruler or head of the synagogue. He's probably the guy paying the bills, said, you know, this is a non-painful chronic condition. You had six other days to do it. You know, wait, wait until Sunday morning. Um, and Jesus says, wait a minute, she's a daughter of Abraham, and I can do this by miracle. Why not? So, the congregation then gives glory to God. What does this tell us? That Jesus is helping people more fully to enjoy the Sabbath because it's easier to enjoy the Sabbath if you are completely able bodied. Um, and he's showing a new way of giving glory to God. And we also see when the congregation says, This is great, that the congregation is not about to stone him because it looks like he did work on the Sabbath because there's no law saying, Thou shalt not hear by miracle on the
0: Sabbath. Now, let me add two things to what AJ is saying. Uh-huh. I think in part of your question, you may have been thinking of Matthew chapter 12 with plucking grain on the Sabbath. And the Bible says that you may not work. And it is quite clear that through the first century of the common era, there were debates on exactly what does constitute work on the Sabbath. Just as there are differences between different Jews and different Jewish denominations now on what constitutes work. But secondly, in terms of the Sabbath being oppressive and that being the way in which uh, rabbinic Judaism viewed it, most people don't realize that the first time the Sabbath is mentioned in a legal sense in the Bible. In other words, I'm excluding the mention of the Sabbath at the beginning of Genesis chapter two, the end of the first creation story. That is not in the Decalogue, the so-called Ten Commandments, but is in the story of the manna in Exodus chapter 16, that miraculous food from heaven. And it's a beautiful chapter which is worth reading because it deals with the self-discovery of the Shabbat. And the wonderful thing about it is, six days, you have to go out and gather the manna. And on Friday, you get a double portion. And therefore, on Saturday, you can rest because you've had your double portion. and. Uh, it, it's it's ready for you. You don't need to collect your food. And in Exodus chapter 16, 29, the he, beginning of the Hebrew reads, Re'u ki Adonai natan lachem ha-shabbat. Now, Mark, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. The rabbis noted that the word natan, to give, is related to the word matana, a gift. And the word matana, gift, indeed does come from this root in natan, to give. And from the rabbinic perspective, the Sabbath really is a gift. And yeah, I must say for myself, as a person who is Shomer Shabbat, who is Sabbath observant, yes, there certainly are times of frustration concerning this. But yeah, I'm very happy that I'm not going to have a, this is a Friday for you listeners there. Uh, I'm very happy that tomorrow, at 12 noon i'm not going to have to worry about a podcast and preparing for a podcast i'm not going to have to worry about preparing my teaching before tuesday i'm not going to have to worry about adding all of these uh, answering all these accumulated emails so indeed for some it is a burden and for some it is a gift
2: and i would say the same thing for christians who celebrate on sunday particularly those christians who cannot do certain things on Sunday, or must do certain things on Sunday, or for our friends who were seven-day Adventist Christians who would celebrate on Saturday. So the Sabbath can be either terrific or annoying, but there's absolutely no reason to suggest that it was really annoying in first century Judaism, and then Jesus says, eh, don't worry about it. Uh, we actually find Jesus' followers being obedient to Sabbath concerns. Um, Jesus is buried or entombed on a Friday, uh, and his followers wait until the end of Sabbath to go out and uh, anoint his body. You can see that in the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 16.
1: Since your book's publication, how has it been received by different communities of Christians? Has there been a difference between Orthodox Christians, Catholic Christians, and Protestant Christians in terms of their response? Has there been a difference between the kinds of responses you receive from Christians in different parts of the world? How have different communities responded differently?
2: Well, we don't have the ability to track who exactly is reading this. It's not like if you buy a book on Amazon, you, you identify yourself as you know Greek Orthodox or Baptist. Uh, but one very positive uh, indication that the broader Christian world is finding this book of interest um is that it has been translated into german and we just learned last week that that the germans will reprint it will come out in a second edition it's been translated into italian and in august the dutch translation will be out Um, And Oxford University Press is now working uh, with other foreign language rights for questions of distribution. So I don't think there are that many Italian Jews who are buying this text, or that many Jews in Germany, although I do know a few, and I happened to be in in Germany a couple of weeks ago, I was at the Jewish Museum in Frankfurt and there was the Jewish annotated on the books in the bookstore, which I thought was great. it's being used in college classrooms uh, across the English-speaking world, so we have evidence of it's being used in the United Kingdom, in Australia and South Africa. Uh, it's being bought by ministers, uh, the bishops, Protestant bishops of Bavaria and Franconia. So if you don't know German geography, think the area around Munich. The German bishops gave all their Protestant pastors copies of the German translation, which was terrific, and I'll immediately put the book on the bestseller list. Um so the vast majority of responses we've received, and the when we bother to look um, at the commentaries on the Amazon site and, and so on, suggest that this is a very very important book, uh, and that both Jews and uh, non-Jews are reading it.
0: So let me pick up on the Jewish part, since Aj predominantly answered on the new Jewish on the non-Jewish part. Yeah, I hear from lots of Jews that they have read it, that as a result of this book. They feel safe reading the New Testament because they know they're not reading it in a particular book, which is trying to proselytize them. And in America and throughout the world, essentially everywhere but Israel, uh, we as Jews are a minority, but typically living in a majority Christian culture. And it is really very important for us to understand the culture that we are a part of. And one of the ways in which you can understand a different culture is by reading in a respectful but non-apologetic way the scriptures of that predominant culture. And I'm really very, very happy that through this book and other work that we've done, we've been able to introduce the broader Jewish public to the most central text of Christianity.
2: I think just as a concluding comment, for me it's helpful to note that if, if we Jews want uh, non-Jews to understand more about us than it, the holiday of Hanukkah, which they learn about through situation comedies or something in the mall, um, a production of Fiddler on the Roof, or the current news from the Middle East, that, to understand about Jewish practices and traditions and scripture, uh, then I think we should be... Uh, engaged in some sort of reciprocity. Jews need to know more about our Christian neighbors than, you know, Santa Claus at the mall um, and some uh, politician who wants to turn America into a Christian nation and throw at everybody else. Uh, and that includes knowing not only the New Testament, but knowing how the New Testament has been interpreted over time, uh, both in terms of how it's been harmful for Jews, but also how it's, it's opened up uh, a variety of uh, 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 Jewish-Christian relationships and possibilities. And our book is intended to correct the stereotypes and to, and to foster better conversation. We're not going to agree with each other, we Jews and Christians, until the Messiah comes, or, or as my Christian friends would put it, come back. Uh, but we can share part of this common history. We can learn how words can both help and hurt. Uh, and together, we can better understand both that common history and how we can bring those
0: texts into the future in a fruitful way. And I'll conclude my part by picking up on one word that A.J. said a word which we both like, which is the word possibilities. So often when Jews and Christians have talked about the New Testament, another word beginning with the letter P has been the word that has been highlighted, namely the word polemic. And we're really trying to move things to a different place, what we've called elsewhere in our book, The Bible With and Without Jesus, from polemic to possibilities. And we very much hope that Some of you as listeners will be open to understanding what this book is doing and for uh buying into the better possibilities that we hope we're trying to that i'm sorry to buy into the better possibilities that we are trying to create terrific thanks for taking
1: the time to listen to us terrific um as we end if you don't mind can i ask you to share anything you can about the third edition of the Jewish Annotated New Testament that you alluded to earlier.
0: It's going to be a surprise. It
2: will (laughs) will come out in 2025, ideally. Um, We have added several new authors. We've changed some authors in part because some of our earlier contributors are no longer with us. We're putting in uh, additional explanations. And for me, because I use this book in my classroom, I would say to my students, if there's something in the notes or the back essays you don't understand, please tell me in case I'm I'm able to put in the corrections. So we've got comments coming in saying, do more of this, or I didn't understand that. Um, Our uh, author base is now more international, even more than the second edition. uh, And we find that to be helpful as well.
0: We try to be responsive to our readers. And something that's actually very surprising is the number of comments we've received from a wide variety of people that are really quite specific, asking us questions about things that they did not understand or wanted to learn more about. And that's wonderful. And that is a lot of what we have responded to. It won't be anything fundamentally different, but it will be longer and we hope better and clearer.
2: And this is the last one I'm going to do. Three is enough. It's a
0: good number. Isn't three a good number, AJ? It's a good number. (laughs)
1: Especially, um, yes, especially in light of the subject matter you're addressing. Absolutely.
2: Exactly. Thanks once again. Thank Thank you. you. This was very good.
1: This was my honor. As we end today, I am signing off as your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, it has been my sincere blessing to be in dialogue with Amy Jill Levine and Mark Tzvi Brettler. They are the editors of the Jewish Annotated New Testament, second edition, published in New York by Oxford University Press 2017. Amy Jill Levine is Rabbi Stanley M. Kessler, Distinguished Professor of New Testament and Jewish Studies at Hartford International University for Religion and Peace, and university professor of new testament and jewish studies emerita as well as mary jane werthen professor of jewish studies emerita at vanderbilt university mark Brettler is the bernice and morton lerner distinguished professor of jewish studies in the department of religious studies at duke university and the dora golding professor of near eastern studies emeritus at brandeis university thank you wholeheartedly
0: it's been a pleasure Thanks.